Our sermon passage this morning is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. So we will read that in just a few moments. But our scripture reading in support of the sermon passage is taken from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, we will consider verses 5 to 8. And then we'll turn just a few pages I turn the back of our Bibles to Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18 for our sermon passage. Brothers and sisters, I remind you once again that this is the very Word of God. It is His infallible and errant Word. This is God speaking to you. So you would do well to listen to His voice. Ephesians 6, 5 to 8. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Now turning to Philippians 2. Verses 12 to 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This ends the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. O most gracious God, we thank You for Your Word once again. We thank You that it is You speaking to us. We pray, dear Lord, that by Your Spirit, through His illuminating power, As he is the chief interpreter of his very own word, we pray that you would give us understanding now. We pray that you would guide us as your word is now preached. We ask for your blessing upon the preaching of the word. And we ask for your blessing upon the hearing of the preached word. May you be glorified, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now you will remember, uh, even if you weren't here, you, you know the preceding passage to our sermon passage this morning quite well. Uh, Philippians uh, 6 to 11. Uh, you will probably remember that in last week's passage, Paul commanded the Philippian Christians to have this mind among themselves. And then he went on to describe what, it, what is known in theological circles as the humiliation of Christ. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's what he said in last week's passage, and then he launched into what it means to have this mind, what the mind is that Christ possessed, that he is uh, commanding uh, the Philippians to have. 
Well, now in this week's passage, Paul gives another command. He speaks once again in the imperative, and he tells the Philippians in our passage to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this is the fourth command that Paul has given so far in this brief letter. And it is somewhat perplexing to reformed folk like us who understand our salvation to be solely the work of God in the lives of people. What does God mean when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? What does he mean? Well, first we need to understand that Paul is further unpacking. He is more fully helping his readers to understand what it means to have the same mind as Jesus Christ. What it means to humble ourselves by being servants. Our passage begins in verse 12 with the word therefore, which is a conjunction. It's used to draw conclusions from what has previously been written. Therefore, because of these things I have just written to you, do this. That's essentially what Paul is saying here. And Sinclair Ferguson, in his brief commentary on the book of Philippians, he writes that there is a logical connection between the work of Christ and the life of the Christian. Christ obeyed. He was obedient to his Father, even although that meant going to the cross. Paul underlines the obvious implication. Those who are in Christ and belong to him must also be obedient. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, was obedient. Therefore, those who bear his name must also be obedient. Now, after the therefore in verse 12, Paul calls the Philippians his beloved, which, again, is evidence of the the abiding love that he has for his Philippian brothers and sisters. He holds them in high esteem. This is a precious church to him. And then he says, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Paul here is not flattering them. He's commending them. He's reminding them of their obedience uh, to the Lord in Paul's presence when he was with them. But what he's saying is that it's one thing to be obedient when I was there with you. It's another to be obedient in my absence. It's one thing to be obedient when you think someone is looking, watching, It's another thing to be obedient when you're all alone. When you think no one is looking. Paul is not flattering them. He is reassuring them by reminding them of their past obedience. They have been obedient with him. He's not casting doubt on whether they're obedient in his absence, but he knows the temptation. He knows the struggle. So he reminds them of their past obedience to encourage them to be obedient in what he's about to command them. They were obedient in his presence. Now he's commanding them. He's telling them to be obedient even though he's absent from them. In fact, he's telling them to be obedient all the more so in his absence. And the specific obedience to which he is calling them here is to work out their own salvation in fear and in trembling. The question arises again, what in the world does Paul mean that the Philippians are to work out their own salvation? Isn't Paul firmly set against salvation by works? Wasn't it Paul who said, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That was Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. How can he say to the Philippians that they must work out their own salvation? One commentator writes, while Paul rejects salvation by works, for him, 
Obedience remains critical to living out a saved life, i.e., sanctification. The commentator points to sanctification. Now, when we think of our salvation, justification is often the first benefit of salvation that comes to mind. It may be the only benefit of salvation that comes to mind. When you think of justification and salvation, you may see those two terms as being interchangeable, as synonymous. But salvation is, is more than only justification. Justification is a punctiliar, one-time act by God. Sanctification, however, is a progressive work of the Holy Spirit. Justification is like ending a sentence with a period. Sanctification is like ending a sentence with an ellipsis. Dot, dot, dot. There's a continuation of what's going on. And so Paul here, he's talking about sanctification. You are justified, but you haven't been perfected yet here on earth. And so sanctification is the process by which you are made perfect over the course of your life. We need to remember that perfection will not happen until you go to be with the Lord or until He comes to be with you. But you're being perfected. Because you have been regenerated by the grace of God, you now have the responsibility to be obedient. And Paul says you should do so with fear and trembling. Now Paul uses the same phrase in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 5 where speaking uh, to slaves he says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And reading just a a little bit further down, we didn't read this verse uh, just prior to the sermon passage, but Paul also gives specific instruction to the masters of slaves, telling them in verse 9 to stop their threatening. In other words, to treat their slaves with kindness. If they're they're believing masters, they're not to treat their slaves like slaves were ordinarily treated in those days. But there seems to be more than simply a superficial connection between these two passages, between our passage here in Philippians chapter 2, specifically verse 12, and Ephesians chapter 6. When Paul tells the Philippian Christians to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, he is calling them to be obedient to their master, Jesus Christ, much in the same way that he tells slaves in Ephesians 6 to obey their earthly masters with fear and with trembling. And so Paul seems to be making an allusion in both Philippians and Ephesians to Psalm 2.11, where we read earlier in the service, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now you remember that in that context, the Lord is speaking now. He's been talking about his servant. He's been speaking to the rulers, to the kings of the earth in a threatening manner as to what his servant is going to do. And he says there in in, uh, Psalm 2.11, Fear him. Serve him with fear and rejoice with trembling. And there's the threat that if they don't, they're going to be broken. They're going to be dashed to pieces. He's commanding them to serve him with fear. Now, Paul uses the phrase fear and trembling four times in his letters, including this time here in Philippians, the other time we read in uh, in. Ephesians, but outside of Paul's writings, it occurs only once in the New Testament, in Mark chapter 16, verse 8. And there it is in the context of describing the response of the women when they arrive at the empty tomb. Mark 16, it's the the last chapter 
in the book. Mark 16, verse 8 is, is the last verse in, in what in some ways is, is, is a contested, it's, it's right before a contested portion of uh, Mark 8, whether or not it is canonical or not. And there we have the, the two Marys, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James. They, they come to the tomb and on Sunday morning they arrive and the tomb is empty and their response is one of fear and trembling. Now that doesn't mean that they are cowering in, in servant-like fear. It means that they are amazed. They are in awe. They are in wonderment as to what has happened. They were not expecting, despite what Jesus had said, that when they got there on Sunday morning, the grave, the tomb would be empty. They weren't imagining that that would happen. And so what Paul means is that the Philippians, as they work out their own salvation, they should do so out of a reverence for God. They are living their lives under his gaze. And so everything that they do must be done in view of that, understanding that. They must live their lives reverently. All of life, in a sense, is an act of worship. The Philippians and we are responsible to work out our own salvation and reverence for God. But verse 13 makes it clear that God is working it out for us. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What it means is that God the Spirit who lives in you, who indwells you, he is working in you so that you will have the will and the power to do what is pleasing to God. Prior to coming to faith in Christ, prior to regeneration, prior to your, your justification, your adoption, and this, this progressive sanctification in which you are in the midst of, you had both no will or no ability to do that which is pleasing to God. But God is at work in you as one who has been made alive in Christ, who's been born again, who is regenerated. Because you are a regenerate person, because you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit is now working. He's making you willing and able. And so if he were not at work in you, you would have neither the will, you wouldn't desire to do that which is pleasing, or the power, the ability to please God. You would have no interest in it. Now verse 13 shows undeniably that God is the one who does the saving. He is the one who is at work in you. But we can't take verse 13 out of the context of verse 12. And so when you put these two verses together, what you have is a picture of human responsibility alongside of divine sovereignty. Divine sovereignty does not negate human responsibility. Human responsibility does not negate divine sovereignty. These things aren't in opposition to one another. They work together. It is God who has made you both willing and able and as you read in Ephesians chapter 2, it's God who's prepared the good works before you, beforehand, that you should walk in them. Well, verses 14 to 16 then give an idea of how we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And, and these, uh, these commands that Paul is about to give, they are specific to the situation that is taking place, that is, that is going on in Philippi at this time. Verse 14 says, 
do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, Paul might have said many things regarding how they were to work out their salvation, but he chose to zero in on these two issues, grumbling and disputing. We, we've mentioned this a number of times already. Practically every sermon, every passage that we've been through in the book of Philippians, there was a dispute. There was a division that was taking place in this church. And this church, which is very precious to Paul, which had thrived in the years since Paul had been there and and first uh, worked as a missionary among them, he's concerned about something happening that would result in a split. And so his commands to them are very specific based on the situation at hand. But these commands are... Good commands for us all. He's given all kinds of commands. Now he gives them in verse 14 another command. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So the the grumbling and the disputing, without the grumbling and disputing, that's what qualifies the doing all things. Whatever you do, he's telling them. Do it and don't grumble about it. Don't dispute over it. And then we think back to the passage that we read from Ephesians chapter 6 with regard to the slave and the master. The slave is to do things in fear and trembling. Paul might have also said there, but he didn't do it without grumbling and without disputing. Now Paul here in verse 14, he's shining a light on the particular issue that had arisen in the Philippian church. And yet grumbling and disputing, they are universal traits of fallen human beings. And sadly, they are traits of the people of God as well. We're fallen human beings for sure, but we are redeemed. We actually can go through life without grumbling and disputing, and yet still we grumble and dispute. Grumbling in particular is a word that is used to describe God's people in the Old Testament again and again, especially in their 40 years of wilderness wandering. Grumbling is the mutinous murmuring of people who are dissatisfied in those who are leading them. In Exodus, the people grumbled against Moses, but ultimately they were grumbling against the Lord. God provided manna and quail for them every day except for the Sabbath. But on the day before the Sabbath, they received a double portion that did not spoil so that it would carry them through. And even so, they grumbled. Even though they had received this manna from heaven and abundant meat in order to to provide for their physical needs, their hunger, they longed for the days of Egypt. They wanted to go back. They were dissatisfied. They grumbled. Paul says the Philippians are to do all things without grumbling or disputing. In other words, they are not to be like the Israelites who had left Egypt. They're not to want to go back, as it were. And then Paul continues in verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, we grumble and dispute all the time without realizing that we're doing it. It is is so natural for us, so common for us. Cynicism, sarcasm, it has has invaded our very personalities. But Paul tells the Philippians that they will be blameless and innocent if they don't grumble and dispute. Our grumbling, all of it, is ultimately grumbling against God. 
If we believe that God is sovereign, and we, we say we do, then we know that all things that happen take place according to His plan. Grumbling is the acknowledgement of God's sovereignty coupled with, coupled with a lack of faith in His intelligence or in His goodness or both. Grumbling is saying, okay, God, I know you're in control, but you're not doing this right. I could do it better. Either you're unintelligent, you're incompetent, or you're not good. That's what grumbling is. We grumble either because we think we know better and could have planned it better, or because we think that God's plan is evil. And that's why if we grumble against God or dispute with Him, we will be neither blameless nor innocent. Paul continues. He says that they may be the children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. The church, which is comprised of those whom God has adopted into His family, must not bear the marks of the crooked and twisted generation by which they happen to be surrounded. God's people are not to be marked by crookedness and twistedness. Our hearts are to be true hearts. Like a, like a straight arrow that does not miss the mark. Rather than being like the twisted and crooked generation, the church should shine as lights in the world. Light in the darkness immediately calls attention to itself. It does so because it stands in stark contrast to its surroundings. I've always found it a little interesting. You watch movies or TV shows, you see uh, 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 law enforcement personnel, uh, you know, officers, military, they're, they're going into a dark building. They're wearing usually black clothing to, to blend in with the darkness. They're carrying their, uh, their M4s or their M16s. And, and on them, attached to the, the barrel of these weapons, they've got a, a flashlight. And a flashlight is, is great, sure, for pointing into the darkness and helping them to see. But a flashlight also is very good for the enemy knowing exactly where to shoot. A light in the darkness stands out. It immediately draws your attention to it. If you are in a dark room or in a, in a dark area and there's, a, there's a, even a light on the periphery, it will draw your attention to it immediately without thinking about it. You instinctively will turn your head. But Paul is saying that the Philippian church, that the church in general, is a light in a very dark world. But if we persist in doing things with, with a grumbling and disputational attitude, that our, that our light is, is hidden. It's some, something like what Jesus talked about, hiding your light under a bushel, under a basket, so that it can't be hidden. A church that looks like the surrounding world, in other words, that blends in with the surrounding world, that is, that is camouflaged by the behavior of the surrounding world, will not continue to be a church for very long. If our behavior is the behavior of the world, and most certainly the behavior of the world is one that is marked by grumbling and disputation, if that is our behavior as a mark of the church, then the church will not continue on for very long. 
It is very tempting to blend in with our surroundings. It is not fun to, to be marked as one who is different. Any of our young people who, who go to public schools or even private schools or who venture out, they, they don't want to do things that cause them to stand out. They want to blend in, most of them. And so it's tempting to do that. But if blending in means that we think like the world thinks, if we behave like the world behaves, we've got a problem there. The church is made up of those who have been called out of the world. Grumbling and disputes, they are characteristics of a crooked and twisted generation, not of followers of Jesus Christ. And so in contrast to grumbling and disputing, Christians are, in the words of verse 16, those who hold fast to the word of life. We cling to it. We hold on to it. There's nothing pulling us free from it. Now the word that's translated holding fast, it can also be translated holding forth, as it is in the King James Version. And so it could be that Paul means, he might mean we're holding fast to it, we're not letting go, there's nothing that's going to pull us loose from the monkey bars on which we are hanging. It could be that. It could be that we're, we're holding up the word of life. In, in some ways, like shining forth like a light. It may be that Paul was deliberately using a word that is somewhat ambiguous in its meaning. Holding forth the word of life, as we've said, it fits well in the immediate context. But holding fast to the word of life fits well with the overall context of the book of Philippians in which perseverance is emphasized. And so probably Paul means both at the same time. Hold fast, hold firm, hold forth. Well, in the second half of verse 16, Paul writes, So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul has just recently referenced, he's alluded to the day of Christ in different language back in verses 10 and 11. He referred to the time when at, at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We saw last week he's referring to the, the great day, the day of judgment, the day when Christ Jesus returns. And all those who have died, either in Christ or outside of Christ, they will be raised from the dead. Their bodies will be raised. Their souls will be reunited to their bodies. And they will bow before Christ Jesus as Lord. He who has been given the name that is above all other names. On that day, Paul is saying here, he would like to be reassured that in his labors in Philippi, that, that his labors in Philippi, they weren't in vain. He wants to see that the Philippians have indeed held fast to the word of life. He's, he's alluding to the fact that he's going to die before they do. He doesn't know when, but he, but he knows his death is coming at some point. Paul knows that his life hangs in the balance, and it does so because of his evangelistic efforts, because he preached Christ crucified, and there were people in Jerusalem who were not happy about it, and they wanted him dead. But he is happy to give his life 
for the people to whom he ministered. That's what he means in verse 17. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Now here he's referring to the Old Testament practice of pouring out wine to accompany the main sacrifice as commanded in places such as Numbers chapter 15, verses 3 to 12. When they offered up sacrifices, they, they poured out wine alongside of it. Paul is, is saying, I, I'm, I'm being offered up as this is this outpouring of wine. He is happy to be sacrificed alongside of the Philippians. He just hopes to find out on the day of Christ's return that his sacrifice wasn't in vain. Even if he is being sacrificed, he says at the end of verse 17, he is glad and he rejoices with them all. And then he finishes out the passage with two commands in verse 18. He commands the Philippians to be glad, and he commands them to rejoice with him. Be glad. Rejoice. Do all things, he says earlier, without grumbling and disputing. And now he says, be glad and rejoice. A grumbling and disputing heart leaves little room for gladness and joy. You know this if you have been through a time in your life where you grumbled. Are you dissatisfied? A grumbling and disputing heart is not a heart that is disposed to worship. Grumbling and disputing with regard to the Lord, with regard to His plan, with regard to what He expects of you in terms of your obedience, it is the exact opposite of worship. What Paul is commanding the Philippians to do, what he's commanding us to do, is to be glad and to rejoice with him. If you stop to think about it, there is very little in this life that should cause us to grumble. Now that may sound hopelessly naive to you. You may, you may be thinking in your minds, you, you don't know what I'm facing right now. You don't understand the, the the terrors that I feel, or the worries that I have, the diagnosis that I or a loved one have just received. And that, that may be true. It, it's very true that I don't know everything that's going on in your lives and the daily struggles that you face. But even so, there is very little that should cause you to grumble, to complain, to dispute God's goodness and His kindness. Think about this. We have to think on a grand scale here. We have to think cosmically. Jesus Christ lived for you. He died for you. His obedience during His life, throughout His life, every day of His life, it has been counted as yours if you believe in Him. You are not reckoned as one who has a record of breaking God's law. You are reckoned as one who has kept it perfectly in every way. Jesus Christ lived for you. Jesus Christ died for you on the cross. Your sin, even one single little teeny tiny sin that you committed at the very earliest stages of your life is worthy of you being damned to hell forever and suffering Grievous pain. 
And yet Jesus Christ died in your place. If you believe in Him, if you trust in Him for salvation, then you will never know, you will never experience that kind of agony. You won't experience the temporal punishment, the kind of pain that Jesus Christ experienced on the cross, the hatred of His Father. You won't experience the eternity of of punishment that is coming to those who refuse to believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. You won't experience those things. His perfect obedience is counted as our own. His death was in our place. And this death was a sacrifice for us. It has cleansed us from sin. You've been washed. And His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, it has broken the bonds, the chains of slavery. You are no longer held captive anymore. You've been set free from your enslavement to sin. That's enough to rejoice. But there's more. After Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, after He spent those 40 days with His people and was ascended into heaven, He sent His Holy Spirit, the the third person of the Trinity. He sent Him as a precious gift to those who believe. And so you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart. And it is this Holy Spirit who is at work in you right now and for the rest of your life who will be working in you to sanctify you, to make you holy. And and you get the, the blessed duty of cooperating with Him, of obeying, of working it out, that salvation. And there is nothing that can wrest that from you. There's nothing that can wrest you from it, this salvation that has been given to you. And what's more, at the end of your life, no matter how old you are when the Lord takes you home to be with Him or how young you you might be, you'll get to be with Jesus. And see him as he is. You get to look upon his face. Really, brothers and sisters, there's very little. In fact, I think we could take it up a notch. There's nothing in this life that can cause us to grumble and dispute, to complain, to be bitter. Not for the Christian. For the unbeliever, sure. Sadly, sometimes the unbelievers are living a happier existence on the surface of things, at least, than than we believers are. Of course, they're doing it using means, self-medication, numbing themselves to uh, the the imminent uh, arrival of, of eternal pain and damnation. But far too often, we are living like those who have no hope. We're thinking like those who have no hope. Part of your working out your salvation with fear and trembling must be this. 
It must be diligent in remembering these things that you have just been reminded of, which are just a, a, a small taste of all of the benefits of salvation that you have. Reminding yourself, being diligent, not allowing yourself to forget, not allowing yourself to become so overcome by the despairs of the world and the sorrows of the world that you look just like the world. Christ Jesus, God the Father, God the Spirit, the triune God has done all of these things for us. He is doing these things for us. Therefore, because of all of these wonderful things that you have just heard about, out of gratitude for those things, be obedient to Him. Your obedience to God is a marker that you are the children of God. Your obedience to God, it shines forth as light in a dark, crooked, twisted world. Your obedience is evidence of saving faith. It is a grateful response to God's work of salvation for us. It gives us assurance that we are indeed saved because our obedience is proof. It is proof that God is working in us and through us. But remember this. Obedience, it is the fruit of faith. But what's the size of the faith that Jesus commands his disciples to, that he holds up as, as an example of, of sufficient faith? It's the faith that is the size of a mustard seed. A tiny little speck. That's all the faith you need to be obedient to the commands of Jesus Christ. The good news is he has already been obedient for you. Out of gratitude for his obedience, be obedient to him. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you have given us this command in your word to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We pray, dear Lord, that we would have such a sense of gratitude that we would come before you with such a, a worshipful disposition that we would be before you with fear and trembling. Not as, as slaves, not as, as, as servants in the sense of those who grovel before you because you're a tyrant, but as those who are your little children. We pray, dear Lord, that we would love you as our Father. And we pray, oh Lord, acknowledging that we cannot do it without the power, without the presence of the Spirit. And so we pray, dear Lord, that your Spirit would help us, that he would help us to be grateful, and that he would help us to be obedient. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.